is a great opportunity. And so now, uh, you know, I was texting Doug yesterday and he had a, a joke. I'm going to share your joke, Doug. I'm giving you credit. So, you know, he was saying, yes, we are the chosen, but on Sunday morning we will be the frozen chosen. So I thought that was clever. There's, I'm giving you credit. So let's invite Pastor Doug up now for this morning's message. Thanks, Tyler. I think you're going to have to work on your delivery, though. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I don't know. If someone were to ask you, um, what did Jesus call us to? How would you respond? Uh, you might uh, in the moment say, well, he calls us to believe in him, to, to follow him. Uh, you might say, well, he, he calls us to uh, live a life different from the world, to live a, a godly, good, moral, righteous life. Uh, you might say, well, we, we're to love him and we are to love others. Uh, you might respond, well, we are to tell other people about him, you know, introduce them to him. Or you might say, well, we are to live generous lives, generous with our time and our resources, because it's not about us. We're to live for other people. And those would all be true, but when Jesus is introduced to us in the Gospel according to Matthew, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus calls people to something else. And it's something else that if I think if we totally understand it and grasp it and then, and then apply it, let this truth sink into our lives, change our lives, then I think it will lead you to a much, much different life for you. It will lead to a much, much different life for our church, and it would lead to a much, much different life for, for our world. We're going we're to get to that, what he said, in just a moment, but I'd like to set today's message in context. You probably noticed from the slide, it says Sermon on the Mount. What we're doing is we're starting a new sermon series today, and we're going to be looking at Jesus, perhaps his most famous words. It's certainly his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Um, and, um, but rather than jump right into Jesus' words today, we're going to do that next week. Today we want to kind of do an introduction to kind of set the whole thing in context. What was going on? Why did Jesus launch into the Sermon on the Mount? And what was he calling us to through the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, uh, Jesus had a main idea in the Sermon on the Mount. What was he calling us to? So we're going to pick it up. We're going to introduce that in just a second, but we're, let's pick it up a few verses before the Sermon on the Mount. It's at the start of Jesus' ministry, just before he starts, in Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin at verse uh, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, and then Jesus, or Jesus, not Jesus, um, Matthew then puts into context what Jesus is doing. He quotes from Isaiah the prophet. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Then Matthew moves to Jesus himself in his words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes Jesus uses the term kingdom of God. They're, they're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. 
Uh, and, and, And more than anything else, as you look through the Gospels, Jesus deals with the topic of the kingdom more than anything else. Uh, in, in, in the four Gospels, about 125, 26 times. In Matthew alone, he talks about the kingdom of God 55 times. So it's, it's a pretty major emphasis in the Gospel of, of Matthew. Jesus will say things like, the kingdom of, is, of God is like, and then he'll use the parable. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like, you know, maybe yeast and dough and all, things like that. Um, Jesus said things like this to his followers. The kingdom of God is, is, is within you. So, so Jesus came. He began his ministry preaching the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. But what is, exactly does that mean? I mean, the idea of kingdom, we don't really talk about kingdoms in American culture. We haven't had a king for a long time. We're pretty proud of that. That's how our country started. We don't want a king. We want to rule ourselves. But, you know, if you hear the term kingdom, you might think, well, the UK, you might think of King Charles or before that Queen Elizabeth. You might think of the crown on Netflix uh, that involves a kingdom. Maybe you think of back to high school, you have kings and queens at prom or, or homecoming. That's about as far as our experience with kingdoms goes. But, but for Matthew's original hearers, it would have been a Jewish audience. Matthew is a Jewish man. His gospel is focused primarily on the Jewish listeners. For them, this, this, this concept of kingdom would have set up all sorts of bells and whistles. Because they would have known that the very first place we see this concept of God's kingdom is in the first page of the Bible. Where, where we're told that, uh, that God is, a, is this royal artist. He is this creative, wise being who is sovereign over everything. And he is powerful enough just simply by speaking and breathing he, he, he creates this world of order and beauty, of darkness and nothingness. And we're told that God is creating and ruling, and what he wants to do is, is to share this creation with others. He wants to share ownership and, and rule of the world that he made. And the creatures that he entrusts us to, it says, are human beings. He made them in his image and he gave them dominion. And dominion, of course refers to a rule, to, to a kingdom. So God makes human beings, the first human beings in his image. He makes them like himself and he shares with them this rule, this responsibility, this kingdom. And then we know how the story goes. He, he places them in a garden and everything is it's supposed to be. He gives them dominion. But as we also know, instead of sharing in that rule, that reign, the first human beings, they they rebel. They revolt against this this king. They revolt against this kingdom. They want to establish their own rule. They want to decide what is right and wrong for them. They want to, they they distrust God. And so this this act of rebelling against the king, against against his kingdom, it results in disorder. and, And everything is affected. Our relationships with God, our relationships with each other, our relationships with the world around us, it's all shattered and broken. And then this becomes the, the central plot line of the Bible. What is God going to do about this? What's the king going to do about this? And the answer that the rest of the Old Testament covers is that he sets in motion a plan to restore his kingdom, his rule and his reign over this world. So he begins again with people. He singles out 
one man through whose family grace is going to form a new people, Abraham. And there to be a, a, an alternate kingdom, a, a contrast community in this world to, to show what it's like to truly honor and, and submit to the rule of the king of everything and to share in his, his goodness and, 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 and his wisdom. That's the story of Abraham. But a cycle begins and it repeats itself throughout the, the Old Testament. God calls to his people. They follow him. They obey him. They're blessed by him. They get comfortable. They become proud. They become self-sufficient. They begin to follow other gods, other priorities, lose God's blessing. They experience the consequences of sin. They cry out to God again. He delivers. Repeat the cycle. Wash, rinse, repeat. And that's the story for the rest of the Old Testament. And then we come to the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and there's this huge question mark. What's going to happen next? What is God going to do to restore his kingdom? Now, if you look at some of the prophets, you'll see that there are hints. There are more than hints. There are signs. There are prophecies that point to how God is going to do this. And, 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 but, yet, but yet the people, the people miss this somehow. But, but listen to um, what the prophet Isaiah said. This is... These verses are right before the verses that Matthew begins with. You know, the whole the light and the darkness. This is what he says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon him. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And he'll rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and evermore. And so Matthew, he quotes this, this passage, this prophecy, right before he introduces us to Jesus' message. And if it's not clear to us by now, the point that Matthew and Jesus are making here is that the culmination of the biblical story, really the culmination of human history is here because Jesus is the one. Jesus is the king. And the kingdom is here. I mean, that's why there are so many, as you look at the Gospels, there are so many stories about uh, his interactions and miracles. He, he heals people. He, he, um, he throws out demons. He, he does all sorts of miracles. He, he even brings somebody back from the dead. And what he's doing in those miracles and what the gospel writers are trying to get us to understand is that the king is here and, and the kingdom is here and he's taking on the kingdom of evil and darkness and he's casting them out. He's beginning the process of, of casting these things out, of defeating the darkness. That Jesus has come to make right what has gone wrong. You know, just an aside here, I, I think it's interesting because Matthew and the other gospel writers, they, they take intentional measures to, to show us that Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem is a sort of upside-down coronation. He's given a crown, but it's not of gold, it's of thorns. He's given royal robes, but they're not of fine silk, they're they're lashed and blood-soaked. He's raised for everybody to see, 
exalted, but not on a throne. It's on a cross. They're telling us the king is here, but it's not like the people expected. It may not be like you expected. The kingdom is here, but it's not like the kingdoms of the world. That's Jesus' message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's here. But, but notice, Jesus didn't just say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when we hear the word repent, maybe for some of you have negative images, maybe a, a preacher screaming or yelling at you about the dangers of hell, turn or burn. But the, the Greek word used here is metanoia. It means to, to think differently after you learn something. To act differently after you learn something. It's the idea that I, I know this now, I've experienced this now, now I must change my life and I must go in a different direction. I must think and act and value and prioritize differently. It makes me think of the movie The Matrix. Remember the movie? Uh, there's this young hacker named Neo, and um, he's been drifting through his life with this gnawing sense that, that there's something more out there, that something's not quite right in the world. And he meets a crew uh, led by a mysterious guy named Morpheus, who tells him that his suspicions are right, that everything he thinks he knows is untrue, and everything he spends his life on is, is a waste. And he is presented then with a decision. You take the red pill or the blue. You take the red and you wake up and you live in reality. You see things for how they really are. Or you go back to sleep, you waste your life, you end up in destruction. The choice is his, but from that moment on, there's no going back. He has to do something with what he now knows to be true. Jesus says in similar fashion that entering the kingdom means taking the proverbial red pill. It's, it's a one, uh, one theologian puts it this way. Jesus' kingdom vision is designed to re-socialize us, to deconstruct our values and reconstruct them in new kingdom-oriented, God-directed ways that are often very countercultural and unnatural. Isn't that true? Give up your life, you'll gain it. Take up your cross, follow me. In other words, entering into the kingdom means having Jesus turn your life upside down from the inside out. That's what he's come to do. The kingdom of God is within you. His teachings are, have this purpose to form us into different kind of people, a kingdom people, people of the kingdom, people of the way of Jesus. It means a deconstruction of old loves, old habits, old judgments, old lives, old priorities, old kingdoms, and, and having them reoriented and turned upside and down and transformed into the priorities and, and the values of the way of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Which is clear, that's how the early disciples understood Jesus. They understood what he was calling them to. I mean, look, look at, at verse 18. Look at verse 18, where it says, as Jesus was walking along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their, brother, or with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I think one of the things that, to note here is that Matthew seems to deliberately write this in a way that we're struck by Jesus' you know, abruptness, the radical nature of his, of his call. These guys are fishermen. They're in the second story. They're with their dad in a boat. They're doing the family business. They're committed to a way of life. This is their life. And Jesus calls to them, you, you, come and follow me. And it's like Jesus just keeps walking and they have to, they have to rush to catch up to him. He, Jesus, he, he essentially forces them into a decision about what their life is going to be about from now on. They're either going to have to say, no, I'm going to continue to work in the family business with dad. We're going to continue to fish and do life this way. Or they have to drop everything and follow him. To trust him, to learn from him, to be what he's about. It's a, it's a picture of, 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 of repentance, of a dramatic reorientation of everything, of leaving behind an old way of life to take on Jesus' vision for a whole new way of being to come into the way of the kingdom. And I, what I want us to, to understand is that in, in the coming weeks, as we spend time with his, Jesus and his, and his teachings, in the same way that he waltzes into the fishermen's lives and forces a decision upon them, he's going to waltz into our lives and he's going to do the same thing. He says some really radical things, some very stark things, challenging things in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to have the same option. We can take the red pill or we can take the blue pill. We can follow in faith or we can go on our own way. We can leave everything the way it is or we can have everything change. The kingdom of God or one of our own making. Because we have our own way of doing things. We have our own sort of kingdom. Uh, we might not think of it that way, but we have a set of values that drive us. We have a set of priorities that we orient around and goals. Things that we pursue, things we avoid, a way of doing life, of living life, and of being. The question for us is, is it going to be the way of Jesus and his kingdom, or will it be one of our own making? And I think for a, a lot of us, sometimes our approach to life and, and, and faith is, well, we're the primary movers and God comes alongside to help us as we need him. But Jesus has not come to be an add-on to your life. He's come to be your king. He's come to be your, your, your Lord. And this, this metaphor of the kingdom makes it crystal clear that the call of the gospel is a call to, to allegiance, to drop everything and follow him, to trust that he is who he says he is, to care about what he cares about, to live as he desires us to live, to think and believe and do according to his way and to his kingdom, not ours. And when we do that, we become stewards of the kingdom that we were meant to be. A part of seeing his kingdom grow and expand from the inside out as he changes us. You know, Martin Luther once said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, 
He intended that the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. In other words, our lives should be a constant evaluation and then reorientation to the kingdom of God, to his values, priorities, attitudes, and actions. That our lives should be a sort of constant realignment to the way of Jesus Christ. That we are to bring our lives to the table each every day and reorganize them around the kingdom that it might break into our hearts, into our families, into our church, into our world. So what, what, what might that look like? For example, every time you remember your forgiveness in Christ and then you extend forgiveness to someone who has hurt you deeply, who doesn't seem to be sorry, who doesn't seem to deserve it, when we extend forgiveness to them because of the forgiveness we have in Christ, you've made earth more like heaven and the kingdom of God is breaking through. And every time you choose to, to intentionally spend time with a neighbor who is needy and lonely, who is a little bit overbearing, kind of drains you over the comfort of vegging out, you affirm their dignity. You show the love of Christ to a hurting person and the kingdom of God is breaking through. Every time you choose faith over fear or anxiety, the kingdom of God is breaking through. Every morning when I wake up and, and I repent of my apathy and laziness and I, I, I try to think differently about what I'm supposed to do with my time uh, and where my comfort and sufficiency is found and I sit with God for a few moments to get my mind right and, and to, to think and grasp and to wrestle with His grace and His love and His forgiveness and His patience with me so that later on I'm a bit more patient and kind and gracious with someone who it's hard to do that with. The kingdom of God is breaking through. And every time you stand up for somebody who has no voice or when you serve, when you refuse to, 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 to be holden to bitterness, when you take the courage to speak God's truth, when you give sacrificially, all because of who Christ is and what he's come to do, then the kingdom of God is breaking through. And so that's what our journey is going to be over the next few months as we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the way of Jesus Christ, the way of the kingdom the way of, of being oriented and changed on the inside, inside out, where our lives are an outflow of what God has done for us inwardly. Because the kingdom of God is, is within you, Jesus said. And he's calling you, just like he did the first disciples, to, to drop what you're doing and to follow him and to pursue him and to love him and, and to obey him. It's our choice, the red pill or the blue. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So let's pursue him. Let's follow the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we are humbled that you love us enough to come to earth as one of us to show us the way, to die for us, to defeat sin and Satan and death, to announce your kingdom. So Lord, help us to be people who are perpetually repenting, uh, in a sense reorienting our lives, evaluating our lives, bringing our lives to you so that increasingly we are lined up, consistently living out 
your priorities, your values, your, your heart for people. Lord, help us to be people of the way of Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. We have a really exciting uh, thing to share with you as a part of the end of the service. I'm going to invite Spencer Einhaus to come up here with me. Spencer shared with our church a few months ago about his sense of calling to the mission field. And he's been getting ready to go and to serve. And uh, you're getting ready to leave here just in a few short days. Um, And so what we want to do is have him come up and just remind us again of what you're doing, why you're going, who you're going with, what you're going to be doing as you go to serve, and then we want an opportunity to pray for you as we send you out and bless you in that process. So can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, Yeah, so like Wes said, my name is Spencer Einhaus, and just a few months ago I was right up here, uh, and I got to share with the congregation the opportunity that I had and I have to go serve in Mexico for two years with Campus Outreach. And I'm so grateful that, you know, three months, four months afterwards, uh, just the way that God has used not just this church, but this body of believers um, to support me. There's so many people here who have just prayed for me, people who have supported me and partnered with me financially, and even people who have just connected me to others that they know who are excited to hear what I get to do. And so because of the way the Lord has used this body here in just over a week, a week from Tuesday, I get to hop on a plane and go to Monterey for the next two years where I'll just get to minister to college students who desperately need to hear the gospel um, and share with them the good news of the Lord. And so I just, I'm so honored to get up here and thank you guys uh, for the way the Lord has used you to send me out. Hey, and before we pray for you, I, I what are some ways that we can be specifically praying for you, not only this morning, but you know, as you share this with our, our church, ways that we can join you in praying as you get ready to head out? Uh, this first one I've been asking people it sounds kind of silly, but I'm not the most like traveling competent person. I haven't flown a whole lot during my life. And so <clears throat> one way I've been asking people to pray is just that the Lord would help me navigate these massive airports and that he would just help the flights and all those little intricate details to just go well. And so people could just be praying that I would make it to Monterey next Tuesday. That'd be much appreciated. Uh, the second thing is that just in the midst of these super turbulent times where I'm making this huge transition, uh, if you guys could just pray uh, that the Lord would continue to be my rock, that I would still depend on him and just look to center my life around him, even when things seem super crazy. And then lastly, uh, just be praying that, man, the Lord would work, would work in the hearts of these students. I said it in the last service, but if God's not working on this campus, then I'm wasting my time there. And so if you could just join me in praying that God would be working in the hearts of students there who are ready and eager to hear the gospel. Awesome. And before we get ready to pray, I'm going to invite some of you to come up, and we're going to lay hands on Spencer and pray for him. So especially if you're a friend of Spencer's or you're somebody who's supporting him prayerfully or financially, if you're on the council, have been on the council, or you're on the outreach board or have been on the outreach board, I want to invite you specifically to come up. So I know there's some, I see some of you are out there, so I'm going to ask you to come up right now. And uh, let's surround him in prayer. So, all right. And as you come, uh, one of the things I wanted to share with all of you is that this is a really high and a special moment. Like when we have somebody from our church who has a sense of calling 
to go and serve. And in this opportunity, like with missions, this is huge and it's exciting. And not only are we going to pray for him this morning and encourage him, but I want to ask our church to be praying for Spencer on ongoing for the next couple of years. So like, let's put him on our prayer list and be praying for him and for the ministry in Monterey and at the, at the university he's going to be serving in. So let's go and pray. And if you want to stretch your arm out, if you're comfortable doing that as we pray, feel free to do that. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to pray for Spencer. We're excited, God, for the calling you've placed in his life, his faithfulness to be obedient, uh, to go and to serve and to, to be prepared. Uh, and now he's getting ready to leave. And God, we're grateful to be a part of this, that uh, you're inviting us as a First Covenant Church to partner with him, uh, to pray for him to encourage him, uh, to support him. God, we pray, as uh, Spencer's requested, we pray for the travel he's going to be uh, going through over the, in, a little over a week. We just pray that you'd help make things smooth and there'd be not any challenges and it goes well so he can arrive in Monterey and ready to connect and to learn and to grow and then to serve. We also pray, God, that you'd help to continue to be the foundation of not only his life but his ministry. And, uh, Lord, that he can just turn to you and, and depend on the Holy Spirit, your very presence with him and, and leading him. And we're praying, God, for your Holy Spirit to be at work in the lives of students at Monterey Tech. God, that you continue to prepare those hearts and those relationships and help Spencer to make those connections as he shares his life with them. But more, and even uh, more importantly, he shares the life of your son, Jesus, with those students. God, we're so grateful. We're excited. And we lift Spencer to you and pray for your uh, encouragement and your provision for him and his ministry. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's give it a round of applause and support him. Yep. Thank you. I invite you now to stand for the benediction. And as you do so, a reminder to our prayer team, if you uh, could take your place in the hallway to the side. If you are here today and you'd like somebody to pray with you after the service, uh, please, please join them there. And now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, may it guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Tell you about my Jesus. He makes the way you are the way.